yeah, I was just like pathologically shy child that was picked up and moved constantly and had my nose in a book constantly and um, tried really hard to please my parents and fit into the model minority until senior year of high school when I had an existential crisis that blew me out of the model minority. That was poet Shizue Siegel. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. In part one, Shizue told the story of her grandparents and their journeys from Japan to California. Now in part two, she shares the story of her mom and dad's meeting. It took place after World War II and their respective internments. Please visit Shizue's website, shizuesiegel.com, as well as rightnowsf.com. Her books are available there and in local bookstores. Here's Shizue. She was just like, just the warmest person. Mm. Uh, and just... And she knew how to take care of herself, it sounds like. Yeah. she. Well, she knew how to do that. She was the oldest of her, uh, of her siblings. Mm-hmm. And her father, this is interesting too, her grandfather had been a court physician in a samurai court okay. in Hiroshima. Wow. And when he lost, you know, when feudalism ended and everybody had to give up their swords and give up their their titles and all that, right? Her her grandmother couldn't handle it, and she went blind. Oh. And so, whereas my grandmother, she's the oldest of the of 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 her the five siblings, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened was that the. Uh, the grandfather had decided to marry his son to the daughter of a fairly well-to-do peasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a step down socially for them, but in those days that you had to do what you had to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then they went through that money. And, you know, I think the economy was like pretty bad anyway. So um, the, the family sort of went from Samurai physician to marry the the wealthy peasant's daughter to being so broke that you have to take your oldest child out of school mm. in the fourth grade. That was my grandmother to take care of her siblings. So, um, you need to go and every day go and buy oysters and carry the oysters ten miles into the hills to sell. My goodness. To raise the money. That's your grandmother. That was my grandmother. Wow. So she said that it was really hard. Yeah. Um, but uh, she was very devout Buddhist. And so she would sit, she would think of the Buddha and chant the sutras and, uh, and tell herself, okay, it's hard and heavy going uphill. But on the way down, the basket will be empty. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, and that so now was, she's in Stockton. Now she's in Stockton, and uh, all of these lonely guys in the, these onion fields in the middle of nowhere <laughs> are, are 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 coming and telling her um, their stop stories, 
and she's you know repairing their their shirts and doing their laundry and blah 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 so she makes enough extra money that they can get out of the onion fields and they buy a little boarding house who's they uh she and her husband she found him yeah oh he's working on this in on this onion field i didn't know she actually found him okay yes. okay okay <laughs> i don't know what he said to her i mean like i'm sorry i Oops. didn't write for two years. i mean i think i think he probably said you know i was gonna write you when i had my shit together I've been meaning to <laughs> oh funny you should show up i've been meaning to write <laughs> i i, I I didn't want to write until I actually had some money, you know. Okay. Uh, uh, anyway, so. Um, so they moved. Yeah, she because made she moved. made the extra money, they were able to move. They started a boarding house, and then they decided um, to um, to rent a hotel that was sort of on the edge of downtown Stockton. Okay. Um. And they and uh, also my grandfather said. I am not going to um, rent to any Japanese folks hmm. because the Japanese folks, uh, they, you know, when they're down on their luck, they want you to loan them. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so after he was, he had five thousand dollars worth of loans, you know, which was a lot of money in those days in the twenties. Mm -hmm. uh, he said no. I'm gonna just I'm just gonna uh, rent to um, European heritage folks, hmm. and a lot of those folks were immigrants. I saw right. on the 1930 census there was something like 30 people that were living at this um, at this hotel, mm -hmm. and they were like the uh, Swedish uh, pipe fitters. Okay. You know, uh, fishermen, mm -hmm. you know. So it was in the Depression. People were down on their luck, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, that's where my father grew up. In Stockton. In Stockton. Okay. And um, and when when was he born? He was born in 1919. So. And you said your mom was born in 20. Yeah. So they were about the same. They were yeah. the same age, practically. Right. Yeah. And he was the first in his, uh, in his family to go to college. Oh, okay. And his father thought it was a waste of time and he should just go out and get some gainful employment. Uh -huh. But my grandmother said, no, you go and I will slip you some extra money. He went to UC Berkeley. Okay. Uh, um, which, yeah, because I think UOP is the university that's in Stockton, but mm -hmm. I don't think there were many. Japanese Americans at the time, and also it's a private school, so mm. I think Berkeley was cheaper. Okay. Um, but anyway, so my father was just about to graduate. I mean, he was going to graduate in June of nineteen forty-two, right? Oh. Pearl Harbor happened in December, and um, the executive order um, uh, to evacuate Japanese Americans happened in on February. Um, February 42. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, yeah. Had he, had, had he met your mom yet? No, they okay. did not meet un until much later. Okay. Uh, so, so this is all going in my, my, uh, my, uh, family saga. Um, mm -hmm. and it's actually, it's, 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 it's pretty interesting. All of these stories. And, Absolutely. Uh, I, I heard a lot of them from my mother. And from my auntie Marion on my father's side, okay, 
who was very much like my grandmother, very, um, she was the eldest sister and very compassionate, very warm, um, really philosophical and, uh, looked out for everybody. Mm-hmm. And she was the keeper of the stories. Okay. So I feel really lucky to have had these stories, but I, I didn't really hear a lot of them until much later when I was grown. In your life. Yeah. Yeah. So growing up, I was born in Baltimore oh. in 1946. Okay. My father had been drafted into the U.S. military. Oh, I should say how my parents met. They met. Sure. The, my mother. Uh, I'll sorry. stop guessing how they met. <laughs> and you can tell us. <laughs> well, my mother's family had been sent to post in Arizona, uh, which, by the way, was a, uh, an Indian reservation that four different tribes had been forced onto the Colorado River Indian tribes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the War Relocation Authority took a chunk of that and said, we're going to drop 16,000 Japanese American incarcerees here. It's like the white people were like, let's just pile on our mistakes. Right. But the other thing they, they thought was... We're going to make these guys, because they're agriculturalists, we're going to make them turn this into arable farmland. Right. And they're going to take the water from the Colorado River. And it, when you fly over that area, you can still see it's desert, 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 Mojave Desert all around. You know, It's no joke desert. Yeah, seriously no joke. Yeah. They didn't even bother to put barbed wire all the way around the camps because it's too hot. It's like four hours, you know, yeah. Yeah. to the uh, uh, anyway. So, um, so when you fly over, you can still see there is green there, uh, and it's it's still a reservation. But on many of these reservations, I found out the the actual going concerns and the agriculture and so forth and so on is operated by white folks mm. on the reservation. Okay. Um, mm. It's like, ugh, it's a whole other story. So it's right. kind of interesting that the, the uh, you know, I'm really interested in the stories and the personal and family narratives of people of color because there is so much richness. Um, uh, and but, stories of survival. Well, and of exploitation and survival in spite yes. of yes. incredible odds. Yes. And the decks being uh, stacked against them in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not just... I think that the, that the dominant culture, it's not just, quote, white. Mm-hmm. It is Northern European mm-hmm. owning class. It's capitalistic and um, yeah. And it, for a lot of people, they sort of grow up identifying it and aspiring towards the the upper middle class, the owning class, even mm-hmm. if they're working class. Right. So they sort of they sort of work against their own interests in a sense because they have been so brainwashed into thinking they need to aspire towards uh, these things. The bling, as, yeah. they, as they call it, the bling, yeah. And, you know, the thing that I found with a lot of people of color 
is, okay, you know, if you change your name, you get a nose job, you lose your accent, et cetera, et cetera, send your kids to college, you're still going to be identified as fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be identified as, and this is also true of indigenous and and black folks, Mm -hmm. as well as immigrants of color, Mm -hmm. you know, you will never lose that label, that mm-hmm. that sense by the dominant culture that you are less than. Mm-hmm. Well, most of us know we are not less than. We might have less, we might have less opportunities, but uh, many of us have not forgotten how rich our cultures are. We just don't get a chance to talk about it. Mm-hmm. If we talk about it, the there's something about the dominant culture which says, I have the right to destroy and resent anything that's not like me mm-hmm. or anything I don't understand. Or and whatever I choose. Right. To erase, usually. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, for, for, for people that realize that there are times in anybody's life when you come up against it, and there is no way you can think or buy your way out of it, mm. you know. And we, the, the dominant culture tends to fear that, mm-hmm. but the, those are the times we have the most growth. Mm-hmm. When we don't get what we want, you know, when we are slammed with disappointment over and over, and it looks like there are no answers anywhere. You know, the whole thing about it's darkest before dawn, that's really true, you know? And so is it true that help a lot of times comes from unexpected sources in unexpected ways. And um, so from that, when that happens over and over again, you finally get it, Mm. you know? You get a sense of humility and gratitude. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're supposed to sit on your butt and wait for the universe to provide for you. You're supposed to work and Gotta make do plans something. And, yeah. and have goals. But when those things don't work out at a certain point, you need to stop and just be in a receptive space, mm. a space where you're reevaluating and you're waiting for guidance mm-hmm. in a sense. Being at open. least at least that's the way it, it's always worked for me. Yeah. And um and I think that in the arts it 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 um if 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 you happen to have made a living in the arts then it, it sort of reinforces that cuz I used to work at J Walter Thompson. Um uh, <laughs> Is that an what, what can you tell folks what that is? Uh Jane Walter Thompson uh, was a very well-established, prestigious um, advertising agency in the 80s. There was a brief period after it had been bought out by Saatchi and Saatchi when it was part of the largest advertising agency in the world. Mm -hmm. And the clients that we had were Chevron, Kaiser Permanente, um, Dole we had for a while, uh, Sprint. Was it based out here on um, the West? Because a lot of those companies are. Yeah, well, this was out of the San Francisco office. Okay. Um, uh, I, the headquarters were in New York, but mm-hmm. they had offices in Tokyo and just all, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I think the culture of advertising has changed since the 80s. I sort of came in on the end of sort of the Mad Men era. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I got the job by total accident. I won't go into details here, but just say I didn't, you know, I, I thought I wanted to be an artist or a writer, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I went to art school, even if, though it wasn't very practical. And then I decided I didn't like the politics of fine art. So somehow I ended up taking commercial art at the Academy of Art. Okay. And um, getting some hands-on practical skills anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and then I applied for what I thought was a summer internship, and it turned out that it was a year-long training position. Okay. At J. Um, Walter Thompson? At J. Walter Thompson. Okay. After a year and a half of advertising classes. Was this like in the late 60s, <laughs> This early was in 70s? the 80s. Or in the 80s, you said. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And how long did you... How long did that last? How long I, until you realized, <laughs> what the hell am I doing here? Well, it was interesting because the creativity was interesting. Sure. And the technical stuff was interesting. Mm -hmm. And it felt a lot of times the high pressure uh, situations and everything felt like we were in the trenches in a war. Wow. So the co-workers that I had, the production people, um, uh, you know, the copywriter, the the account exec, you know, we had these teams. And um, yeah, it was it was not easy, but and there were a lot of ways in which I, I couldn't relate to it at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm doing Chevron lubricant ads. And the account exec is telling me, you know, these products are just the same as any other petroleum company's products, yeah. you know, but you've got to figure out a way to grab people's attention and somehow blah, blah, blah. How do you even begin to be creative with something like that? It was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and also, if I if I can speculate, um, as a woman, as a woman of color in the 80s, I mean, it wasn't... You know, it's hard enough, I think, in 2021. Yeah. 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 It was really tough. And um, I think in the whole creative department, there were three Asians, one black guy, and then a few closeted LGBT folks. Mm -hmm. And everybody else, just about everybody else was a white man. White man. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Fortunately, I had not a mentor exactly, but an ally because uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the folks was a Japanese American design director uh -huh. who had actually opened the Tokyo office at one time, mm -hmm. uh, and he knew the people in New York. He had come up in the through the bullpen and mm -hmm. the mailroom with the guy who ended up at one time being the president. At Jay Walter oh. in New York. Okay. Uh, so good person um, to know. So he was a good person to know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of, you know, I'm one of these people. I'm not great at anything. I do a lot of different things. Okay. And I'm sort of a generalist, so I do everything well enough. <laughs> okay. If you say so. <sighs> um. But yeah, I got to do some fun stuff, like um, 
Chevron Public Affairs ads um, that were in the opera and theater programs for Ooh. 20 years afterwards. Ooh, okay. Um, Can we back up really quickly? Um, I, we're going to have to kind of lightning round through yeah, this stuff. Right. And I, I feel bad because I don't want to leave anything out. But how did you, where were you born and how did you come to live in San Francisco, to be in San Francisco? How did that um, happen? Okay, I... That's pertinent to this podcast. Right. <laughs> uh, I was born in Baltimore uh, okay. a few months after my entire Japanese-American family was released from the camps. Got it. Uh, my parents met by accident. They were totally unsuited for each other. They would not have married, probably, if it hadn't been for the war and unsettled circumstances. Mm -hmm. Uh, my father was uh, drafted and recruited into military intelligence, spent 22 years in military intelligence oh, wow. trying to prove that he was a loyal American. Okay. Uh, we. How long uh, did we, you stay in, in Baltimore? We moved every 18 months oh. to three years up until I was 12. Okay. So we went from Baltimore to Occupy Japan um, back to Baltimore uh, with periods living with my grandparents uh, uh, who had lost their farm and mm. were um, getting back on their feet by sharecropping strawberries for Driscoll's. In California again? In California, near Morgan Hill. Further, further north, yeah, from where they were. Yeah. Had been. Yeah, they have been told, don't go down to San Luis. They hate you down there. Uh, it's like people won't um, sell you gas, even. They won't sell you insurance. Um, it's horrible, but I guess that's a useful thing to know. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it took them 10 years to save enough money to buy a 10-acre farm um, okay. uh, north of Morgan Hill. And okay. so I lived with them. Okay. Yeah, the Army had this weird thing where they would send the father ahead and then it would take maybe a year before the family was allowed to join him. Kind so of like a, 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 a new version of your grandfather's story. Yeah. <laughs> but, but now it's the official U.S. Army policy. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, so, so, so these radically different environments, segregated Baltimore, occupied Japan, uh, um, agricultural um, – Santa Clara Valley, mm -hmm. uh, and my grandmother was still running that his Skid Row hotel. Oh, okay. By herself in Stockton. In Stockton, okay. Uh, and then we moved to San Francisco when I was twelve. Oh, the, your your immediate family moved. Your yeah, parents. Yeah, my, moved. my my parents. Okay. My father was assigned to the Presidio, and so uh. my first abode in San Francisco was the Baker Beach Apartments. Oh my goodness. At the top of the hill. You could do worse. I had a, 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 a fabulous view of, of uh, Land's Bridge End and, Land Land and uh, Mile Rock, which actually still had the lighthouse at that time. And, and do, you have, do you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. Okay. And um, so, yeah, I was just like pathologically shy child that was picked up and moved constantly and had my nose in a book mm -hmm. okay constantly and um 
tried really hard to please my parents and fit into the model minority mm. until senior year of high school okay. when I had an existential crisis oh. that blew me out of the model minority. Okay. Did you go to school here in, in San Francisco? Uh, yeah, after, I went to Presidio you... Junior High, okay. and then I went to um, uh, George Washington High School. Okay. Uh, and then for a while, I went to John Adams Continuation High School. Over on and, uh, um, uh, Masonic? Yeah. That place? Okay. Yeah. And then I went to UC Berkeley mm -hmm. for three weeks. Okay. <laughs> I said, I am not going to re regurgitate received wisdom for another four years. I've already been there, done that. Love it. Uh, yeah. So I, my parents gave up on me at that point. I married the wrong man. Mm. My, my father's in military intelligence. So who do I marry? A red diaper baby. The son of a communist oh. that ran the communist <laughs> bookstore on Valencia Street. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I wondered why my father was mad at me. <laughs> anyway, we got Amazing. married in 66 and moved to the hate. And we um, oh. had an apartment at Ashbury and and Frederick. Wow. Which in the apartment building where reputedly Jack London had once lived in the basement. Okay. So uh, yeah, so. And then and then art school and then J. Walter Thompson. Yes, Let's, but okay. First India went to oh. India a couple of times. And stayed on an ashram, spent nine months on two different trips um, on Satyasai Baba's ashram. The first time that we were there, um, there were 700 people on the ashram. 25 of them were Westerners. Mm. So we had amazing access for that time. And then when I went back in, um, in the mid-90s, they had 10,000 pilgrims a day going through that same ashram. Wow. Oh, my God. So I was lucky to have been there at a time when it was this really dusty little ashram mm -hmm. where there were no toilets on the ashram except at the hospital. So you had to go take your little pail of water up on Poop Hill and try to find a place to hide. <laughs> Oh you you could go down and and you know wash your uh your saris on the rocks in the river when there was river water in the river is that better than a hole in the ground i don't know yeah the river was wonderful when there was water, water in it right, right um the rest of the time we would have to go and you know buy a pail of water for 25 pice you know right uh but it was incredible it was one of the hardest things i've ever done but i really learned how to be here now yeah and to just trust in circumstance mm -hmm. so um again with a little bit of effort and maybe a little bit of receiving yeah right. yeah it's you know i work hard at whatever i do but people tell me i could work smarter oh <laughs> That sounds familiar. <laughs> I'm really good at beating my brains in on on stuff, and then s things open up sometimes. And uh, so another thing that I did after the advertising, I did advertising in various agencies for a, a, about a dozen years, and then in the '90s, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. I'm out of a job because ad advertising is 
first one f- laid off uh, during a recession. Right. So um, the token black woman that I worked with at J. Walter Thompson, I went to see her to see if she had any leads on jobs. She says, I'm working for the AIDS office. Oh. Did you know that uh, the, the fastest rising uh, segment of people that are getting HIV are black women? Hmm. Uh, so I got a job doing HIV prevention in two public housing projects. Here in San Francisco? Here in San Francisco. Okay. And it was an eye-opener yeah. on a lot of levels, including how clueless well-meaning white people can be about designing programs for the marginalized. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, after that, I decided I had to become a writer and help end racism. I thought and this people, is in the 90s. In the 90s. Mm-hmm. I thought if people could only knew the truth, they would change. Well, I'm not sure that I believe that anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or is it that it just takes a lot of... It takes a lot of... It takes of, a lot. Yeah. Um, so, Cause, I mean, because you're still at it. Uh, yeah, I'm still at it. 20-some years later now. Yeah. Yeah. Books and live events and yeah that's how i found you yep yep yeah so uh yeah i did the hiv prevention for about a year and a half and then i lived on my savings for another year and a half trying to get the program refunded Mm -hmm. and uh then i started to volunteer at the japanese national japanese american historical society around 1999 just as the former incarcerees were finally getting old enough to you know to want to tell their stories oh wow so i was blessed to write um um i got actually hired to write a couple of books on japanese american stories okay including one about white uh white allies Mm. um like during the war, White Allies? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, it's called In Good Conscience, Supporting Japanese Americans During the Internment. Yeah. And there are some amazing stories in there, including the assistant superintendent of the Steinhardt Aquarium mm-hmm. just had gotten his job, freshly minted um, PhD, had come down from Seattle. But he had he was a Quaker and a conscientious objector. So after Pearl Harbor, he says, you know, when I get drafted... I'm going to lose my job anyway because I, I you know, I'm a conscientious objector, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So why don't I quit my job now and I rent a room in Japantown to see how I can be of use. <sighs> we need more white people like that, <laughs> don't we? That's awesome. There are a lot. Of- I was going to say, I mean, we... <sighs> we as a society in America, we barely talk about Japanese internment. And we never talk about allies. Yeah. So one of the things I did last year, and I want to do it again this year, um, Kim Shuck, the um, uh, poet laureate emerita um, that just stepped down uh, when Tango was named uh, poet laureate. Uh, anyway, Kim Shuck is is half Cherokee and half uh, fourth generation mission uh, European heritage. Okay. Uh, so she and I did a series of um, workshops um, um, for BIPOC and white folks to come together to 
do some creative writing on racism. It was called um, The Elephant in the Room, Getting Real About Race. So I want to do Love another it. series of those um, this coming year because um, they went really well. Because we should talk together. You know, just because I, I do a lot of stuff to support BIPOCs doesn't mean that I don't like white people. I grew up in largely white society. My mm-hmm. partner is white. You know, mm-hmm. his mother likes to brag about, you know, having a connection to the Mayflower. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> started dating him i'm going god you know i've ha- had a lot of white friends i've you know I, I don't understand why this guy is so weird and i go wait a minute <laughs> most of my white friends have been either catholic mm-hmm. or jewish oh. i'm both for the record <laughs> <laughs> i am uh yeah i mean t- it's interesting there's something about that wasp tradition Mm -hmm. that really uh, i mean yeah the pretensions that go along with uh identifying with um the northern european halves to my mind the thing that i i really don't want to leave out is i want you to talk about all the the work you do if you have i think i saw some websites in there in some of these books so if you want to tell folks you know how they can find all this stuff or or anything that you also have coming up um in the next whatever next few months uh, okay i have um two websites one is for um my fiscally sponsored um uh organization uh which is called right now s right now exclamation point sf bay so the um website for that is www right now sf.com and then um and then i have a personal website that's just my name www s h i z u e s e i g e l dot com shizoy siegel dot com okay uh and are you on social media uh yeah i'm on facebook okay. i'll look for shizway siegel and then i have pages for uh right now sf bay and then i have pages for some of my anthologies i've done four anthologies of writers and artists of color in the last four since 2015 besides the website where can folks find those books um, you can find them at a lot of bookstores, um, um, uh, Bird and Beckett, uh, mm-hmm. Bookshop West Portal, uh, Browser Books, um, Dog-Eared Books, um, Alley Cat, although Alley Cat just got bought. Green Apple. Uh, Green Apple, Clement Street. Uh, not Green Apple at the park, at the park. but uh, right now... Um, my latest anthology, Essential Truths, the Bay Area in Color, sold out in two months. And Congratulations. I'm, That's I'm, awesome. I'm waiting uh, to get another 500 copies that are coming in just before Christmas. Okay. And can folks also find those books on your website? Uh, yeah, they're, they're all they on my them. website. Okay. You can order them um, through my website. Um um, but as I said, the the most recent one is uh, not in stock Currently right now. Currently out of stock. Right. Good good problem for you to have. 
<laughs> okay, I lied. I want to end, actually, um, our theme this season on the show is uh, We're Still Here. Um, speaking to a lot of things that I, I, are obvious to me, they might mean something different to everyone. Um, but can you can you respond to where we all are in this time, sort of in San Francisco history, and the idea of we're still here? Yeah, we're still here in spite of the gentrification and the escalating rents and the pressures on family-owned businesses and restaurants that are the heart and soul and flavor of the city. We are still here. Uh, and one of the ways that I've been trying to support that is my latest pro, uh, project, which is called Talking to Strangers. And it's a, s a series of mini publications about Chinese restaurants and um, Afghani immigrants and uh, uh, Latinos who feel that 15 hours, uh, $15 an hour is hardly enough to live on in San Francisco. But we're still here. We haven't given up. I think if anything, our voices and our passion is stronger than ever. Um, I think we're more serious than we were. Um, you know, this is not the time for self-indulgence. This is a time for rolling up our sleeves and getting the work done and reaching out to each other and treasuring community wherever we can find it. That was Shizue Siegel. On the next Storied San Francisco, get to know lifelong resident, bartender, and pub quiz MC Matt Sterling. Episode 29 drops next Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy Thanksgiving, y'all. Music for the podcast was produced, performed, and curated by Otis McDonald. Original photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Aaron Lim of Bitch Talk Podcast is our contributing producer. And the show is produced and hosted by me, Jeff Hunt. Now in our fourth season, we have more than 160 episodes available on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you can, please rate and review our show so we can reach even more folks. We love email. Drop us a line at storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay strong, stay healthy, keep dreaming, and we'll see you next time on Storied San Francisco. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. Learn more at podcast.bff.fm. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever.